1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. more of what you want to hear from the week that was. Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott has unveiled legislation to modernize the delivery of home care. The promise is that it will remove barriers among different providers and to deliver services more quickly and with better coordination. It will also remove the ceiling for maximum allowable home care, which is currently 14 hours a week. Libby spoke with Health Minister Elliott, former Deputy Minister of Health and University Health Network CEO Bob Bell, and NDP health critic Fran Jelena also joined the conversation.
2: A lot of it is just uh, allowing the health partners to be able to work together. uh, There have been barriers that have been set up over the years, largely through legislation through the Ministry of Health, that we're going to change with the uh, uh, Connecting People to Home and Community Care Act to allow um, primary care uh, hospitals and home care to work together for the benefit of the patients and their families. You're
3: taking off the maximum. That's great. Some people need more, but basically, they already can't
2: get what they're supposed to get now. Well, we're certainly uh, dealing with the uh, question of personal support workers. Um, with respect to home care as well as in hospitals and my colleague the minister of long-term care is, is looking at it with respect to um... her file but it is really important that we work with personal support workers to understand why they're not staying in, the, in their profession uh... i think there's a, a number of issues there that uh... we can deal with because we know that we need more personal support workers across the board in health care and we are looking at that somewhat as a separate issue, but of course, it does relate significantly to home and community care. This plan, of course,
3: has its critics. So let's bring in Gelina and Dr. Bob Bell. Let's start with you, Bob. What, What do you think? First of all, I'm
4: delighted the ministry has chosen to stabilize the system by not creating chaos in home care leadership, governance, and administration. It is a bit of back to the future, however. You know, we're going back to 14 LINS, which were supposed to not exist under the Connecting Care Act. Um, We're being told that Ontario health teams will take on the responsibility for home care in the future at some undefined point. But, you know, there are over 5,000 care coordinators in this province responsible for interviewing patients, organizing their home care. And these people need to work somewhere. And currently, Ontario health teams can't possibly employ care coordinators. The Lens can. am delighted to see the Lens system being revitalized because it uh, has a lot of experience with home care. But this seems like a bit of return to what used to be there, I think it's fair to say.
5: Hans, do you agree? Uh, I agree. I mean, uh, she said she was going to Change the form. It's basically staying the same. But at the core of it, our home care system is broken. It fails more people than it helps every single day. What is the major driver of our failed home care system? They cannot recruit and retain a stable workforce of PSW. Why? Because even if she works from 7 o'clock in the morning till 7 o'clock at night, five days six days a week she's not going to make a living wage make psw jobs good job give them four full-time a living wage and a little bit of benefit and problem solve there are thousands tens of thousands of psw who work anywhere but in care because if they work in home care they will starve they will live in poverty None of what the minister has put forward uh, goes to the core problems that we have with our home care system.
4: I can tell you, as a cancer surgeon who's referred a ton of patients to home care, the work that personal support workers do in our health system is the toughest, least respected job. They don't get paid for travel. They only get paid when they're facing the client's. And, you know, they, they're expected to work from 7 to 10 in the morning and from 6 to 8 in the evening and then just go home during the daytime. I mean, this is a tough job that's underrespected. The last government increased hourly wage for PSWs by $4.50 an hour. However, when we look at the amount of funding that's going to home care, the workers don't see most of it. And, you know, this is a problem. We need to look at the delivery model of home care in addition to the organization. This government spent two years looking at the organization of home care without tackling the major issue, which is how home care is actually provided.
1: Health Minister Christine Elliott, former Deputy Minister of Health and University Health Network CEO Bob Bell, as well as NDP health critic Fran This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Toronto's 5,000 outside workers could have a tentative deal, legally be on strike, or locked out by City Hall. Libby talked to Toronto City Councilor and Deputy Mayor Denzelman and Wong, Ward 16 Don Valley, less than 12 hours before the strike lockout deadline, which was later extended to midnight Friday.
6: We're making some progress. There are still some outstanding issues. Uh, we hope to uh, reach an agreement, but we're still trying to work through some issues.
3: Let's go through the things that could suffer if there is a strike. Now, I know city officials say, don't worry about snow clearing. Most of it is contracted out. But if uh, they picket the yards where the snow plows are stored, isn't that, couldn't that be a problem? Well,
6: we could see some delays um, if they picket our yards uh, in terms of um, salting and and uh, some of our equipment getting out. But they'll get out. They might be a little bit late, but they'll still get out.
3: What about some of those sidewalk clearers? Well,
6: it depends. I, you know, if, to be clear, it, I think it would be depend on depending upon the type of snowfall that we get. The one we're getting right now doesn't seem to be too problematic for anyone. So I think we're we'd be good to go for a snowfall like this. But if it was a I think it was a larger snowfall and there were big, you know, significant uh, snowfall. I would hope that um, for safety reasons that we could get all our equipment out as quickly as possible.
3: There's also the issue of garbage east of Young Street. Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, well, it would not be collected because, as we all know, that is uh, done by our, those collections done by 416 west of Young Street. Uh, there will be a modified collection, but garbage will be collected.
3: Garbage will be collected not east west of Young Street.
6: That's right. We're asking uh, residents to put all of their garbage uh, in. In uh, we're not going to pick up the organics. Okay. Um, we're going to ask them to hold on to their recyclables, but we're going to be pick, ha- having regular garbage collection.
3: Okay. So why why can't you do the recyclables west of Young Street?
6: Well, this is also has to do with our transfer stations and picketing and uh, related. The, we can't have the same robust service uh, because of uh, the troubles we might have at our, our, uh, at our transfer stations.
3: Okay, and you're anticipating that?
6: Sure. Yes, we are. We've got um, significant and robust contingency plans, but we also recognize that in a strike situation, the union has certain rights and capacities to limit us delivering services, and that's just a fundamental reality in labor disruptions.
3: I guess uh, the good news is that it's winter. It's not one of those summer garbage strikes like we had back in 2009.
6: And that's the thing that we will, you know, from the city's point of view, we want to avoid at all costs. We are not going to be in a position where we don't have a a collective agreement or where we're going to be pushed out on strike in July and allow that to happen. That was under David Miller. It was a complete disaster. The residents were furious and that's just not a reality this time around.
3: The mayor is calling the biggest sticking point jobs for life. The union says that's a very unfair way of looking at it. It's, it's a provision that gives protection to people who have been working for 15 years or more, right?
6: We have a number of issues that we're discussing at the table, and I think we've outlined them quite accurately um, in the media. Job security benefits, parental leave wages, and uh, jobs for life still remain outstanding
3: Uh, well uh, can you talk to me about the jobs for life thing is that would you call that the biggest sticking point
6: well i would say that that um we have a number of items to discuss at the table and that's one of them and the current arrangement now is uh if you're in we're not first of all let me say clearly and unambiguously we are not looking for a change to the current agreement so it was 15 year if you worked for the city for 15 years you got jobs for life um, uh, up until the end of 2019, we are not looking for any change to that. That was previously agreed upon by the by the members of 416 in the last negotiated arrangement, and we're not looking to any of those changes. It's 416 that is looking for changes to that language. We are not. Um, it's something that I think most people uh, in Toronto know. It's not offered. Uh, this is this is something special that the, that, that's offered by the city. They want to actually make, make jobs for life even uh, even worse, and we're not looking for that. We're looking for the same arrangements as currently, as currently exists.
1: Toronto City Councilor and Deputy Mayor Denzel Minnan-Wong. I'm Bob Comsick and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. The Trudeau government tabled legislation to amend the rules on medical assistance in dying, also known as MAID, this in response to a Quebec Superior Court ruling that deems sections of both Quebec's and the federal government's legislation on to be unconstitutional because they're too restrictive. The legislation would repeal the requirement that a person's natural death be reasonably foreseeable and also permit access to the procedure to someone whose death is reasonably foreseeable but who has lost the capacity to consent since deciding to do so through an agreement with a medical or nurse practitioner. The bill also removes the requirement for a 10-day reflection period and waives the requirement that a patient provide final consent. Joining Libby were Sandra Martin, a contributing writer for The Globe and Mail and author of the award-winning book, A Good Death, Making the Most of Our Final Choices, and Toronto-based family physician and psychotherapist Dr. Chantal Perot, who has been providing made assessments and procedures to patients since July 2016.
7: Well, I think there are a number of positive features to it, but I don't think it goes far enough, unfortunately. Um, They are removing the 10-day waiting period, which is excellent for, for those patients who are suffering intolerably, but not for patients who whose deaths did not meet the criterion of reasonably foreseeable, they will have to have a 90-day waiting period. Um, they do remove advance requests for some patients, but not for, for all. The patient has to have made an appointment to have the made procedure, so it can't be somebody like Audrey Parker, the woman in Halifax, who died early because she was afraid of losing capacity. She wanted to stay alive as long as possible and then have made once she lost capacity, but it would have meant that she would have had to set a date. So she did set a date and die earlier than she otherwise would have. So there are a number of things that need to be Need more attention.
8: Uh, Sandra Barton, what's your take? I um, first of all want to say that I do respect David Lametti, the uh, Minister of Justice, because he was one of four liberal backbenchers who voted against the original made law that the liberal government had presented because he knew there were parts of it that were unconstitutional. And one of them is the reasonably foreseeable natural death criteria. And um, so he's trying to fix that. And so I'm, I appreciate that part. There are other parts of the tabled legislation that I think are, are very problematic. So I will say that um, one of the problems for people wanting to have made, I mean, of course, first of all, what is a reasonably foreseeable natural death? Nobody can predict when someone's going to die, not with any accuracy. So what happens, well, what will happen under the legislation is that Patients who, at the end of their lives, if they're terminally ill, they need um, they need pain medication and that may make them lose capacity or they go in and out of consciousness, this should make it easier for those patients because they will not have to affirm consent at the last minute. I suspect that what will happen in practice is that that conversation that doctors like to have far as I understand it, in that you say to the patient, is this really what you want? This is the final time for you to say you can back out, but is this really what you want? That conversation will take place a little earlier. Is that a problem? I think it's not so much a problem. I mean, I think that for somebody who is definitely going to die very soon, it's okay that the 10-day waiting period is, is, uh, is gone. But for people whose death is not imminent, as it was with Audrey, for example, Audrey, um, she had not lost capacity. She was feared that she might lose capacity if she waited several months until Christmas because she wanted to have another Christmas, that she would. Um, That that 90-day period is probably already done by the time she's been assessed and approved.
3: So what do you think is missing in this
8: law, in a nutshell? they're leaving out the excluded categories. So they are dealing with the um, imperative issue of the reasonably foreseeable natural death, which shouldn't have been in the law in the first place, either in Quebec or in Canada. So they're dealing with that issue more or less, but they have left the big, big issues. I mean, if you, if you ask yourself, what is my biggest fear of dying? It probably, I mean, I certainly know what I would say. It's a neurodegenerative disease that will, or dementia or some such thing like that, that will, that will keep me suffering for a very long time and from which there is no release. If I have a cancer or a bad heart disease, I know that I can probably get my choice of ending my life when, with help, when I feel I've had enough. But not so with those other diseases.
7: Yeah, and I think those that's are my biggest true.
8: fears of dying.
7: Go ahead, Dr. Farrell. That's very true. There are, there are going to be many patients who are still going to be excluded with these changes in the legislation. And as I said before, I think they modified the reasonably foreseeable death criterion, but they did not remove it or repeal it. And because they haven't given a clear definition, there's going to continue to be uneven access across the country. And with the uh, advance request, Again, it, it will help some people, but the person has to be informed that they are at risk of losing decision-making capacity before they schedule their date of their MAID. So if they don't know, if they have a sudden stroke between the time of the assessment and the date that they have chosen, they won't be eligible because they wouldn't have been told ahead of time that they were at risk of losing capacity because a stroke is something that's unpredictable. So there are a number of things like that that are going to put patients at a significant disadvantage.
1: Toronto-based family doctor and psychotherapist Dr. Chantal Perrault, who's been providing made assessments and procedures to patients since July 2016, and Sandra Martin, author of the award-winning book *A Good Death: Making the Most of Our Final Choices*. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Umar Radio's Best of Fight Back. We recently had confirmation of the first COVID-19 case in someone who had not traveled to an affected area. It's the husband of a previously diagnosed woman who had recently gone to Iran. While our officials are still emphasizing the risk here is still very low, there have been ominous warnings from around the globe, notably from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, that an epidemic is coming, and the question is when, not if. To complicate things, we are heading into a very heavy travel season, March break. Will that make things worse? Foreign Affairs Minister Francois Champagne has advised Canadians to keep tabs on the latest from the places they're traveling to, and many are canceling their trips. Israel's the first country to advise against all overseas travel. What should we expect, and what are your options if you had plans to go away? Libby spoke with Dr. Marion Joppa professor of the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph, and Dr. Alain Weissman, epidemiologist and infectious diseases specialist at the University Health Network.
9: Right now we haven't seen many cases in Canada, but we are preparing for what seems to be an inevitable uh, pandemic that will come and hit Canada. So, These ominous cases that you're referring to are situations where transmission has occurred without a connection to the original site of the the pandemic in China. This includes places in Iran and Italy, and then as recently as yesterday, the United States. So although things are right now uh, okay in Canada, in other words, there's no transmission occurring in the community, we are preparing for that uh, situation where where there will be cases of transmission within the community to hospitals and public health agencies as well.
3: Dr. Raisman, how much is a heavy travel season going to complicate all of this?
9: Uh, certainly, it'll probably add to the likelihood of transmission occurring between people going to all sorts of places in the world. Um, we know already, even before travel season, that the world is so heavily connected with flights between every nation in the world. There's nowhere you can't go now. So it, it may just simply speed up the process that was already likely to happen, given how much tourism and business occurs from various parts of the world and, and, all, and all continents.
3: Dr. Mm Joppe, a lot of people are cancelling trips. What are people's options if if they want to cancel a trip they've already
10: booked? It depends entirely on what they bought at the time they booked. Um, A lot of people will book, uh, you know, the cheapest price. Um, Airlines offer you... Uh, a range of of uh, prices very uh, often, and if you book the cheapest in all likelihood, it has a clause that says uh, no cancellation, no uh, rescheduling, which basically means you're out of the money. Um, travel insurance, most of them do not cover something uh, like um, an epidemic, and so you cannot get your money back either. Uh, So it really depends upon what you booked and how you covered yourself at the time. I would imagine, Dr. Javi,
3: that people who book those cheapest fares, once they've paid, they're going to say, heck, I'm going to take
10: that trip. Yes, and then they need to think very carefully about where that trip is going uh there are still uh, parts of the world that have not seen any cases uh whether that remains to be um like that it, we don't know but right now for instance the popular destinations in the south uh, you know caribbean mexico central america even south america with the exception of brazil which has one case that came from italy uh they don't have cases so if that's where you're flying for the march break you're probably okay. If you're going to Italy, northern Italy, or one of the other um, sort of hotbeds of, of the infection, Yeah, you might want to think twice.
3: Dr. Vaisman, I think they're right now at airports, they have special screening for people coming from certain places?
9: Yes, yeah, since the beginning of the outbreak back in January, there have been a screening conducted at airports for symptoms uh, from certain countries. But at this point, And even at the beginning, it it wasn't entirely effective. And at this point, it's going to be even less effective, given Uh, that we know people are asymptomatic. You could be incubating and also the number of countries that are affected. Just speaking to that caller's point that certainly we should have uh, alcohol dispenser rubs available as often as possible in public areas, including the airport. But particularly in areas where uh, people are using, people are going to be eating. That that would be another important area to have alcohol rubs. And as he mentioned, it's important to replace them
10: when they've emptied. Dr. Joppa, what
3: would you like to leave us with on this?
10: Right now, Canada is pretty safe, but you also have to consider whether you have underlying conditions, health conditions, uh, such as diabetes or or, uh, things like that, that will weaken you because that Seems to be the people who are most affected. The recovery rate is pretty good. I mean, something like thirty-two thousand people have recovered from the uh, from COVID nineteen already. We always hear about how many have been infected, uh, not so much about the fact that quite a few are now out of quarantine and and uh, are, are back to health. Um, so it's it's not all bad news, um, and and let's hope that. Um, uh, you know, we learned a lot with SARS, and, and uh, Canada um, has good uh, a good health care system, and let's
1: hope it'll protect us. Dr. Marion Joppa, professor at the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph, and Dr. Alain Weisman, epidemiologist and infectious diseases specialist at the University Health Network. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Kopsik. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, and here are some of the best calls of the week. Sharon and Barry on coronavirus travel.
8: We've booked two back-to-back cruises uh, last May, crossing the Atlantic to Barcelona, getting off the ship there and getting on another ship with the same company, and going to uh, France, Italy, Greek islands, and home from Venice, And we booked uh, travel insurance and cancellation and they will not cancel the trip because of what's going on there right now. And I'm really, my husband and I are both very worried about going. Like I'm a senior and I'm just very worried because uh, when we booked this, everything was fine and we're really looking forward to it. And, uh, but right now I'm not.
0: (laughs) And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week. But the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dave in Toronto, who pulled back the CRA curtain.
11: I used to work for the CRA, and uh, training there used to be phenomenal. Uh, There was very little, uh, when people phoned in, there was very little misinformation given. Uh, That has changed over the years. I'm still in contact with people that work there. And there's absolutely little or no training given to some people when they go on the phones so that uh, the quality of the, uh, of the product is not there that it used to be. You used to be able to walk into a CRA office or one of the tax services offices and get information at the counter. They've closed that down. Uh, Prime Minister Harper closed that many years ago. There's lots of people like myself or seniors who need to walk in and talk to somebody, not over a phone.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays at 416-3600740 on Zoomer Radio, AM740, also 96.7 FM downtown. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Bob Comsick. Jane Brown returns next weekend when we'll round up the best. A fight back
0: the best of fight back is produced by jane brown justin Eacock, and Zeb Hadi with technical production by kelly robotham executive producer moses Nimer. you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio